Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Welcome back to our podcast where for the second time we're going to launch headlong into the meat and potatoes of why we're here, 10CC and their difficult second album he said with a, a smile on his face if ever there was the opposite of the difficult second album it's sheet music uh, quite an astounding piece of work uh, such an enjoyable varied eclectic fun collection of wonderful songs performed with zest and power and uh, a real sense of enjoyment um, and I'm so looking forward to having a chat about that today, Paul. Yeah, me too. Um, this is the first 10TC album I bought. Right. And uh, At never... the time? No, not at the time. Um, I think I bought this in 1980. It was sort of 79, 80 when yeah. I got into 10TC. It wasn't a good time in a way to be getting into 10TC. The new album was Look Here. Mm-hmm. But luckily I didn't buy that because <laughs> I'd read that this was the best one. And I'm so glad this was the first one I got. Yeah, this was actually the last of the four albums that I heard. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, my dad had original soundtrack okay. uh, that he borrowed off a mate and he'd, he'd recorded that. So I, I used to enjoy playing that tape. And then my English teacher gave me a, a, a pre-recorded cassette of How Dare You. And then I, I think I found the 10CC album. And then it was the good old record library in Wellingborough, the source of so many of my musical sins in my teenage years where I, I saw this this record and literally fell in love with it on first contact mm. it's very accessible to the teenage year isn't it i think definitely because to a certain sort of teenage year perhaps. there's some intelligent novelty songs aren't yeah, there yeah yeah uh, as well as um yeah naughty without being rude but the kind of naughty quirkiness it's a very bright and shiny album um, despite still having lots of substance beneath, mm. so it's, it, it attracts. It attracts. Instantly. That's right. Yeah, it's the. It's like it's a sunshine album, but but there's uh, there's an edge to, yeah. to so much of the material. Mm. And lyrically, there's some dark moments on, on this record, uh, but every single track has got so much of interest. Every track is completely different from from all the other ones. On the first album, four or five of them, particularly the Godly Cream things, are almost, dare I say it, formulaic. Mm. I mean, considering how deliberately different Godly and Cream tried to be with every recording they, they ever approached, the first album was almost predictable by their standards. Mm. Great. Uh, and certainly the Godly and Cream stuff on the first album are generally my favourites on, on the whole record. But on this one, on sheet music, suddenly there seems to be, like with many great albums, uh, Abbey Road by the Beatles, for example, where every single track has its own universe, its own sound, its own tastes. Sheet music's like that for me. Yeah, I don't think there's any track here that I'd call a dud on mm. all the other three you know, albums by the four-piece, there's tracks I'm not so keen on. Yeah. I mean, there's still tracks I like more than others, but I wouldn't really want to be without any of these no. songs, I think. Yeah, it hangs together 
beautifully as a collection. Yeah, considering it's so eclectic, kaleidoscopic, it, 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 that is the essence of the album and it works brilliantly. Definitely. It's kind of like, in many ways, it's like their surfs up where every single track is a completely different style and flavour to, to all the others. Um, and yet they somehow seem to fit together as a collection. Can you put it uh, in, in some kind of context for us, Paul, in terms of what was happening just prior? Right, well, of course, uh, they were now a success. They'd had a couple of big hit singles, or three hit singles, and there was suddenly a, a more serious proposition when they returned to uh, Strawberry Studios. Um, and I think the, the atmosphere was supercharged even further famously whilst 10CC were doing the night shift Paul McCartney uh, and his brother Mike and Wings Mark One as it were were in Strawberry during the day recording the album that became Magia mm. which is a great album in its own right actually don't know whether you're familiar with that one Space gliding long motorways, running a race, sails in the sunset, fireworks explore. Motor plane plows through a night on the road. The point being that there was a already a great creative chemistry between the four guys in 10cc, and now you had undoubtedly the competitive element by being in the studio um, at the same time essentially as Paul McCartney so they thrived on the on the competitive they would play each other the results of the session and um, and they were all you know they collaborated to some degree uh, the gizmos on Magia on, on a track or two okay uh, but generally there wasn't too much crossover musically but certainly the, the, the atmosphere in the studio was very creative and yeah. of course there was this hermetically sealed unit free from outside influence from record company uh, interference just the the four guys Peter Tattershall working almost invisibly but you know um, uh, a crucial contributor particularly when Eric was actually performing or playing um, a couple of office staff and that was they were the only people in the building at this point so mm. they were beautifully cut off mm. uh, just in, indulging well, not indulging that's the wrong word they were uh, you know constructing um, economically this this great record absolutely uh, in a in a intense melting pot yeah swapping partners and we'll talk about this this that's is the it. album where they they every track is composed by two people and the usual combinations of Godly Cream and Stuart Gorman are there, but they swap partners. Yeah, there are seven, you, there are seven different combinations, right. if, if we include the B-sides. Okay, so to great effect here, and some unique combinations, and we'll talk about that. What I was going to say is that the first single from these sessions was a serious misstep, uh, at least commercially. The worst band in the world was a miss. Um, Jonathan King, I think, was the one who pushed for it to be a single. He loved this track. Yeah, that's right. Um, and if you look at the chart statistics of 10CC, this worst band in the world was their fifth single and the second out of five to completely miss the charts. Mm. So I wouldn't say they were back to square one, but it was a serious setback. And once again, they had to pick up 
um, and find a hit after they'd had a miss. So that that probably, uh, um, I presume, I don't know the, the sort of the timeline of this. I presume the album was complete before they issued The Worst Band in the World as a single. But I'd I have thought so. I don't really know for sure. seems to come out reading between the lines here for, for all the things that we've heard uh, about Jonathan King um, it's undeniable that he was a, a genius in terms of, of smelling a hit or smelling a hit band from you know from a hundred yards yeah uh, he obviously gave 10cc an awful lot of creative freedom uh, it, it, uh, this album is so eclectic it can only be thanks to a record company that that basically said, I will release your record, just go away and write a, a bunch of, of stuff that you're happy with. I think that attitude was more prevalent at that time. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um... Certainly unlike the 60s, where, you know, there was an awful lot of pressure to maybe record two or three albums a year. Yeah. Stick to a formula. Right, but but later on, the, you know, the, the, the record company would get involved and would have to sign off an album before they'd release it. And yeah. they'd often, you know, make artists go back and change things mm. ironically it's come full circle now hasn't it yeah. with a new business model if you like where people uh, often even named acts will have to for reasons of you know commerce self-finance mm. their own records and so once again they're free of artistic interference so it's yeah. um, interesting how that's that's moved around but yeah for whatever reason they were left completely alone during these sessions mm. Yes, it's interesting on the on the reissued CD. There's the uh, the single edit, the radio edit of Worst Band in the World. Right. Uh, and I'm not sure if you've ever properly listened to that, Paul. But the the lyrics have been um, subtly doctored. Yeah. Is this where instead of um, we don't give a it, we don't give up? He says. We don't give up. We, yeah, we don't give up, which, which kills the rhyme. Yeah. Um, and is is just absolutely pointless. And the bit where uh, he says, up yours. Oh, is that taken out too? Yeah, that's gone as well. You mean they've actually completely got rid of the... Re-recorded the vocals. So Lowell's gone in and, and okay. actually re-recorded them. It's one thing to know it, but another to admit We're the worst band in the world, but we don't give up For me, I'm yours, I'm mine But everybody's that takes time But we're working on it Working on it. I understand why that was done, and yeah, it's it, it's to the detriment of the song, but it's only like a nanosecond's worth within the. I don't see how it makes it any less a potential hit, mm. unless unless during that crucial period um, when they went back to re-record it, they were they weren't getting airplay until they'd re-recorded it. So maybe it was just the momentum was killed from a time timeliness point. Maybe of you. I don't know. What Maybe. There. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it, it's a particularly strong single, even though I I adore the track. You could be right. It's 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 quite um, 
a difficult song in some yeah. ways, isn't it? It's and not cyni- radio friendly. No, and cynical doesn't work in, in in pop singles, does it? Particularly, right? Well, back back to the Dean and I, we were saying that's slightly it's satire, but it's slightly kinder. Yeah, this is this is. Um, There's no warmth in it. No, it was biting the hand that feeds, almost, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well, no. What am I saying? It's actually, it's um, that they're, they're doing themselves over, in fact, aren't they? I mean, m- maybe yeah, calling a um, titling a, a song the worst band in the world was was, was taken at face value or something. It was just too clever. It wasn't. It yeah. wasn't a good idea. Yeah. Anyone who's who's got an, an irony bypass would yeah uh, would avoid it. But wouldn't they have just got off on the guitars and the dynamism and the sound and the fun? Yeah, they didn't. No, obviously yeah. not. We have as an album track. It's, it's marvelous. And as far as I, I'm aware, Paul, it's the only Cream Goldman song in the in the canon isn't it yeah it's it's unique uh i think you'd be hard pressed without knowing that it was those two i mean it sounds like uh, a cocktail of all four doesn't it yeah um, and sometimes you can graham gorman actually is a writer because he's had a hand in so many songs mm. you can sometimes pick out things that he would do but I, i'm not really getting it on this song it sounds more like a lol kev song if anything yeah, i agree and then you know uh, Graham's bit where he sings We've never seen the band Leave it to the roadies Yeah I, l- I love that bit oh, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. So, there's so much fun and Yeah it doesn't fit with what you'd expect from, from Graham does it that yeah. bit Love the whole thing I mean right from the off here this would have made a great opening track I think Yes no, I've got no problem with the Wall Street Shuffle opening the album but Worst Band in the World would have made an, a great opening track and uh, love Kev's drumming on this mm. It's uh sparse it's sparse you know there's a thing about singing drummers you get i i think i hear this with phil collins maybe don henley and others Mm. because they're singers the way they play the drums it's going to sound odd this is almost more musical it's Mm. kind of hooky you know that the the the, you can almost uh the drum parts are almost hooks you know they may not be the 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 most intricate fills or, or as it were but but the, the way they play the drums yeah. is really it's got a pop sensibility to it definitely and it very it punctuates the silence um at, at some points in the song there's virtually nothing going on yeah love and to hear though that drum track though it's, it's brilliant and um like we were saying in the previous podcast the way it's recorded and mixed which was uh you know entirely eric's role Mm. Um, the drums are extremely high in the mix particularly and unusually the kick drum right uh, and yeah. the kick drum is problematic in, in terms of creating too wider I think it's called bandwidth mm-hmm. um, but they didn't seem to have any worries with this Trevor Horn always talks about um, pushing the boundaries with uh, Video Kill the Radio Star right. he says which has the loudest kick drum in up at that point in, oh, in the yeah. whole of pop music. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if actually Worst Band in the World has the loudest kick drum in pop. <laughs> but it's wonderful. It just absolutely explodes through that, the speakers. That must be what I'm hearing. I'm hearing the full kit, but yeah, maybe subliminally I'm hearing the kick drum kick drum and, and wasn't aware of it. I just just love the drums on this. But I love all the instruments. So. Yeah, and I love, uh, I love Eric's... Uh, cameo at the end, you know, where he's the talking record, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. With the hole in the middle, and he's saying, I just really love it. It's all the way through this whole album. Uh, You've got, it's a constant 
minestrone, you know, pun intended, <laughs> of, yeah. of the four of them. Yeah. Writing together, coming up with ideas together and throwing in their little bits. Mm. And I get the sense that they, they used each other's voices as instruments where they think, I think, you know, I think Eric's voice would be better on this bit, you know, because of it. it's, it's got a bit of grit or it's sexy or whatever. Mm. Graham, you should sing this bit because we want a little bit of kind of quirky fun. Yeah. That sort of thing. Oh, and they're they're yeah. using each other's skills, aren't not, they? Not many bands had the luxury of four great lead vocalists. Let alone the songwriting uh, Well, abilities. yeah, that, 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 that goes without saying. But even the de- deployment of different characters, you know, in different mm-hmm. parts of the song. I mean, and those bands that do have that, I'm thinking of maybe Fleetwood Mac or something. Yeah. You know, that, that's, a, that's a key part of, of their makeup. And, and, and same, same here with, with 10cc for, for sure. You know? Absolutely. And a, a really fascinating uh, thing for me with, with this album, before we, we start talking so much about the individual songs, which we're very excited about doing, is the, 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 the change of axis in, in the songwriting partnerships. Yeah, there's, there's a very rich mixture, seven different combinations, but it's really interesting for me that Eric is behind both of the album's hits, Wall Street Shuffle and, and Silly Love. Yeah. Whereas he, he was the only member of the band who didn't, didn't have a hand in hits from the, from the first album. Uh, Kev doesn't have a hand in, in either of the hits, but, uh, but Lol does uh, as a co-writer of, of Silly Love. So you've got, I suppose in, in hindsight and reverse engineering, we've got the start of the Goldman Stewart songwriting partnership kind of establishing itself as a very effective uh, hit-making uh, thing, um, which of course grows in prominence as we get uh, into later albums. Yeah. Well, looking at, why don't we jump in and talk about the Wall Street Shuffle? Yeah. <laughs> And Graham, yeah, um, you know, fantastic song that they'd never written anything to that level before. I mean, mm. we're talking, I was talking how I loved Waterfall, but it's not on this level, no, in terms of dynamism. This is this is something else. It's a it's also like a Godly and Cream song, it's got multiple movements, but they flow really seamlessly, mm. perhaps more. The flow is really natural here, or almost less jarring than some Godly and Cream, the way that they structure songs. No, or, I, I agree, definitely. Uh, Eric and Graham are definitely less jarring. Yeah. Probably deliberately so. Yeah, maybe. There's a, there's a natural pop flow to their there's stuff, a, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, and, and ultra-commercial. I mean, the yeah. Wall Street Shuffle is a fantastic-sounding record, but it's also a really commercial... Uh, it's a really commercial proposition... Um, you, you, and you've got that kind of obsession with money 
mm. that, that seems mm. to flow through a lot of their work as yeah. well, or, or commerce. Yeah. Although, famously, I'm sure fans will realise this, um, Lowell came up with a phrase. What, Wall Street Shuffle? Yeah, they were riding in a limousine through a deserted mm. Wall... Oh, not, sorry, not a deserted Wall Street, riding through New York, through Wall Street. I think it was Lowell who came up look at all those people doing the Wall Street shuffle. <laughs> Eric immediately tucked that away in his, his noggin and then yeah. he, and came up with the, oh, the germ of the song after. But, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful song. I mean, right from the opening, that riff is so strong. Yeah. Then he, he Eric, and then Eric doubled, and Eric tripled. That's all him at the start, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and he's playing... Uh, looking at... We've got the, the album sleeve in, in front of us here. Um, and we, we ought to mention that uh, the, the, the copy sheet music that we've got in front of us, which we'll share with you on the, on, on Facebook or, or wherever, yeah. uh, is signed by all, all four members. Yeah. Thanks to uh, a car boot sale in Studley in Warwickshire, probably about 20 years ago. But the album, it actually says uh, to Colin. Um, so I feel a bit of a fraud owning this thing. and It, it cost me tuppence. Uh, I'd just like to say, whoever you are, Colin, thank you so much. He'll probably come calling now, wanting his album back, knowing... Uh... <laughs> yeah, definitely. But uh, looking at the uh, the inner sleeve, you know, sort of wonderfully designed by Hypnosis. Yeah. Um, in a kind of a, a 50s, 60s comic strip kind of feel. Really fantastic. But looking at the, the instrumentation, instrumentation credits for Wall Street Shuffle, Eric is very, very busy. Mm. Apart from the, the lead vocal... Uh, electric piano, grand piano, lead guitar, organ, and my favourite instrument in the world, or possibly my joint favourite instrument in the world after the gizmo, is the Mellotron. Yeah. Now, did Strawberry Studios, they wouldn't have had a Mellotron in situ, would they? I didn't think. Uh, well, they would have probably borrowed it from, you know, the Moody Blues or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, who were, you know, the, the, the first proponents of the, of the Mellotron. Mm. Um Paul McCartney uh, would have had access because he used it on Strawberry Fields yeah. for the flute intro. He did. And maybe it had something to do with the McGear sessions, but I, I don't yeah. know whether it's on that record either. Yeah. I'm not sure. They'd have, you know, they'd have, they'd have been able to get their hands on one. But it's the Mellotron on, on this track is that wonderful thick uh, string sound that you hear. They'll wind up on Skid Row with It's a wonderful sound, uh, and of course they use it on another track on the album. They use it as a, a they use the flute sound from the Mellotron uh, as the instrumental in Hotel. Okay. Gorgeous, and that's right. the, that's exactly the same flute sound that opens Strawberry Fields for. Okay, well it's the same sample, isn't it? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's the same couple of little old ladies apparently who played all these <laughs> the famous famous violin and string and and woodwind wood samples or you know originally come a small people that small people small group of people brought in to play these what are now famous famous samples. That's right. I mean, as a brief aside, the Mellotron's an amazing instrument. It's the, it's the first sampler. 
yeah. or the first um, playback sampler uh, device developed in, in Birmingham in the uh, around 66, 67. Uh, it was fantastic, a, a kind of a two octave keyboard. Every single key on the keyboard was directly attached to its own tape machine. Yeah. And you, you press, you know, the, the A flat key and it will play a tape loop of a, a band of, of old ladies um, playing that note on a, a variety of instruments. So in, yeah. in, in, in this case, uh, strings, uh, you know, violins or cellos or whatever. Uh, and of course, you know, what you play a chord on this thing and that a four note chord will operate four separate tape machines. So you can imagine the noise and hiss and the <laughs> sheer weight of the damn thing. Yeah. Imagine carrying it upstairs to a gig, um, but an amazing sound. And, it, and it's, it's lovely to hear it featuring on so many sort of current records. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely become an invoke sound, yeah. It's back. But you can, you can get it in the form of a download now, of course. Yeah, much easier to have. Yeah. So that, that's one of the really interesting things I think about sheet music is uh, you've got a, a much wider variety of, of instruments now. They're using synths in a, in a, a very upfront way. Hmm. Uh, the Mellotron and, and, uh, and, of course, the Gizmo, which we'll come on to, to later. Just a word before we leave Wall Street Shuffle. That the, the, this is an example of the sort of creative crossover. The, the drums... Um, it wasn't Kev's kit. I think they used Jerry Conway's kit. Jerry Conway okay. was the drummer for the McGear sessions. Right. He, he, you know, he didn't become part of Wings, but he was he drummed on the McGear album, and he had this kit that Eric particularly liked the sound of. So Kev was uh, put on that kit for this for this song. I think only for this song, and it does have a slightly different drum sound to my ears it to, does. to all the rest. And I think the the whole backing track has a slightly different sound as well. There's slightly more ambient reverb on it okay. than, than, than we heard on their first album for, for example right yeah so a bit of a departure it's a good departure yeah and of course it was a hit yeah uh, which was a top 10 hit equaling the Dean and I at number 10 so big big song again for them because it kept them you know uh, back in the game really in, when yeah. the singles market was very important definitely and I, I wonder if the success of Wall Street Shuffle either consciously or subconsciously affected Eric and Graham and kind of gave them a green light uh, to think that their partnership was clearly not a cash cow, yeah. but, but something that was going to bring them commercial success. Oh, it must have emboldened them, you know, their, their, their self-confidence uh, self must have been way up after this. Definitely. And, and, and on the next two albums, Again, it's the Goldman Stewart combination who are producing all, all but every single one of the hits. Yeah. Um, so I think Wall Street Shuffle was a very important moment in in in, ten, in the ten CC timeline. What do you make of uh, of their other tune, Paul? Baron Samedi. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that correctly, by the way? Yeah, Baron Samedi. French for Saturday. Uh, I like it. I, I used to think it was one of my, what was one of my least favourites. But as time goes by, I really like it. Another thing I really like is the live version. We mentioned in the last podcast about the live version of Fresh Air for My Mama on the 1974 In Concert yeah. at the BBC. I think their version of this Baron Sandy song is great on that as well. It's a real showcase for, um, in a live setting, it's a combination of Kevin. Paul Burgess on drums and percussion. Mm. But um, yeah, it's a real driving track. It really is.
exotic about it, which fits the subject matter, you know, this sort of voodoo spirit in Haiti and New Orleans and so on. We, we see the character, of course, in the film Live and Let Die, don't we? Yeah, maybe that was a deliberate sort of reference. Yeah, because that was only the year before yeah. the album came yeah. out. This, this idea of kind of supernatural and yeah. magic, that's also a theme that kind of comes in and out of 20C music, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and sort of pseudo-African drum rhythms going on yeah. uh, here. Um, busy vocal, sort of high, high speed, high octave. And that weird bit where Eric's voice goes up and up and up in pitch. Yeah, is that them just kind of twirling the tape round... Mm. It reminds me of, of uh, She's Going Bald from the Beach Boys' Smiley yeah, Smile. Yeah, a few uh, Beach Boys aficionados. Yeah, blow. <laughs> Where they must have been just gradually slowing the tape down as they were singing. Oh, there's a whole, if you look, there's a whole thing where Stephen Desper <laughs> explains in great detail how he did that. That's an aside. <laughs> yeah. There's a page somewhere. And it's yeah. far more complicated than we're making it sound. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, and he's going, Living Day. I've always loved that bit, and it, it's uh, musically, it's probably the, the least interesting thing about the the whole track, really. But it was one of the things that stuck out at me as a teenager yeah yeah uh, that that just hooked me there are so many kind of clever gimmicks on the record uh that production tricks lyrical quirks and so on uh that make it just instantly addictive yeah it's a great vocal as well by eric isn't it yeah he's really coming to his own as a singer yeah that happened pretty quickly um you know, going. I don't think on, on Hot Legs days he did sing the odd lead, but they weren't really songs that they weren't that strong. The songs mm. he got to sing lead on somehow. Yeah. So, and you know, the, certainly with Wall Street Shuffle and here he's <coughs> projecting a new self confidence in his vocals. Yeah. I mean, groovy kind of love, crikey, you know, monster hit number oh, yeah. one. Uh, but it's nowhere near as strong a vocal as this. No, it doesn't even sound. I mean, when you listen to it, you can tell it's Eric, but his personality isn't fully formed on that song, perhaps, mm. whereas it's completely different. It's, it's great. He's, he's really having fun, and I think he's finally really feeling his, just like you say, the confidence in front of the mic. Take you up when you're feeling down When you're sick, he will come around Takes his cures from underground Yeah, so we've got, I think it's a brilliant start to the album. Wall Street Shuffle, superb, strong single. Worst band in the world. Hugely fun. And then a, a, a really brilliant uh, sort of triumvirate of Godly godly Cream songs. Oh yeah, they've got three in a row. Three right? in a row. Um, amongst my, my favourite tracks on any album. Uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy them so much. Um, you, you go from from the fun, the tongue-in-cheek, uh, arguably politically incorrect, 
to the, the deadly serious and then back to the quirky, fun brilliance. I think Hotel Old Wild Men and Clockwork Creep are just superb. Where do they sit in your, in your table? Well, they certainly show you how, even just looking at Godly and Cream, how, how wide, you know, different sorts of songs they can provide for you. Um, I love Hotel because it's just so catchy. It really is. Uh, the sound, the driving acoustic guitars. The percussion. Yeah. So bouncy, isn't it? Yeah. Again, it's got this pictorial thing, an early example of that. You've got the two... Uh, you've got, I picture, the, you know, the, the, the inhabitants of the island in the first verse mm. looking out at... What through, is it? Through the, the undergrowth. Yeah, through, at the sort of... Um, the colonialization of of their island or yeah. imminent you know um, um taking over of their island by you know by these americans yeah exactly yeah. and then it cuts to the americans in part two that's the way i yeah, read all, it all you know toothy grins you know sort of fantasizing about yeah flashing, oh, it doesn't matter flashing we'll... their cameras and uh, and thinking they're doing the right thing or something so it's quite a balanced view and i really like the fact you see both sides of the story yeah almost. yankee go home yeah yeah exactly. yeah tempered with the, the kind of the optimism and uh kind of naivety of the of the people coming in yeah, there are the there are sort of mentions of the white the white saviors. Yeah, there's mentions of cannibalism, mentions of cannibalism, but you know it's the big the the big black mamma in the tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wouldn't get away with that now. No, you probably wouldn't. Let's buy a hotel. Let's get a yacht. We'll get a golden island in the sun made of coconut. Let's buy an old car. We'll crash in a hut. To the board and we'll live off the coconut. Well, there's a big black mama in a tree. She's gonna cook us, she's gonna call the rest of the tribe. And it looks like the ghost of Tarzan lied. He went over to the other side and he rang like a bell from tree to tree. They never ever let you go. They never ever let we had our share of big palookas. We've just looked up palookas, and it, uh, one of the definitions is like a large, stupid person. So maybe they're saying they, they've eaten their fair share of big, fat Americans. <laughs> That's <laughs> we ate our way through half the Pentagon. Yeah, I think that must. I didn't quite. Yeah, I didn't quite get that before. I think yeah. So yeah. So that maybe that's just a disparaging term for for the for the the large tourists who yeah, are coming American up and, and buying up the island. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's a, it's a joyous track. This I think the intro goes on a little a little bit too long, and the and the accent kind of annoys me. You know, on yeah. on the other side, but I love that the, the synth in there is 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 fabulous. Yeah, it's one of the few places they get a kind of synth soundscape going, isn't it? Very yeah. few places TenCC actually rely on the synth as the whole background. So Definitely, that's quite interesting in its own right, because that role would shortly be taken over by the gizmo. Mm. So that, that's quite a uni unique little section. Definitely. But when when the band kicks in with the you know first first, you know, let's buy a hotel with that lovely, warm, fun vocal from Kev. Yeah. Uh, the bouncy percussion, the acoustic guitars, and the lovely bouncy bass. Yeah. Uh, it's just absolutely superb. And it's funny, Paul, in, in recent months, the thing that struck me most about sheet music, kind of, I suppose, re revisiting it for the umpteenth, umpteenth time but doing it with a purpose obviously this time mm 
What's really stuck out at me is just how wonderful Graham's bass playing is on the oh, album. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. forgot to mention that during Wall Street Shuffle but you could put any track and say that yeah real unsung hero uh, like again we made the comparison before I think about to McCartney and I think 100%. that's it's, it's valid in its in the melodic approach yep. and the know. sound the sound sure yep. but plummy it, percussive played with the plectrum mostly yeah uh, the, the, a, a sound that you can literally taste you could eat it all day <laughs> uh, and um, so melodic um, very nimble fingered as well. Yeah. Some really, really fast runs going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly in this and, and somewhere in Hollywood. Uh, really, really fantastic. And yeah, he, he's got to be the unsung hero, hasn't he, of this band? Not, not often the front man. I'm going to mention it now in case I forget during the, <laughs> the episode on the original soundtrack, just to give one tiny example. Um, the song Brand New Day. Yes. There's just a little bit near the end where it says... Um, Next morning, you get up and look around you, and the bass goes do 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 do, and it and it really evokes. I'm sure it's deliberate. It's the idea of somebody looking around them. Mm. That's just a tiny example. I just thought of that one for some reason. No, it's a, it's a lovely. It, I know exactly what you're talking about. It it's, just, it's perfect. It complements the song in such a intelligent, creative way. Marvelous. Yeah. Hey, when you look around you, and the song. And this one, you know, in the hotel. Great, great runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of almost like, um, who's the, is it Chris Squire, the Yes bass player, yes. who gets all the plaudits, right? But yeah. it's got that drive, hasn't it? And that, yeah. he, he also same, plays Same bass, yeah, yeah. Rickenbacker. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And there's, a, and, yeah, there's an edge. Uh, as well as beauty and and uh, and softness, you yeah. know, it's a it's a great combination of of different um, f- flavors of sound, but beautifully played with such a songwriter's ear. Exactly. You were talking about Kev being a, a, a songwriting drummer. Yeah, right. Graham's a songwriting bass player. Exactly. It makes a big big difference. And then we come to what is, I think, my favorite my favorite track on the album. And certainly in my top three of all time 10cc related stuff. And that's what Old Wild Man. Oh, 
utterly stunning. Uh, it's grown on me over the years, and this is a track that as time goes by and the kind of pioneers of rock and roll get older, and now of course the guys in 10CC get older, uh, it tells its own story inevitably as time goes by. What well, you mean it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah, because they're the old wild men. Yeah. Um, there's that lovely bit at the end of the 10CC documentary where they play old wild men and you see a, a young Kev stepping up to the mic juxtaposed with the old grizzled Kev, hmm. kind of split screen. Yeah. It almost brings a tear to the eye. I mean, it, it's, an, it's a story of all of us, you know. Age changes everything. Yes. And, but um, it really brings a pathos. I mean, the song, do you think, I think this song was originally written about the Beach Boys. I've, it's got to be. In, in my. That's one of the reasons I fell in love with it within about two seconds. Right. I was already a Beach Boys Where obsessive. Where are my boys? There. It's there in the first line. In deepest water as yeah, well. I think you so, know, yeah. yeah, it it must be, but it could be about any of those sort of sixties or even fifties acts yeah. uh, that was kind of looking a bit washed up. Time was com- very compressed then. This is only seventy four. Yeah. And so it's only twelve years since the the, the, the start of, of proper beat groups. Um, Twelve years now is the is the space in between Tears for Fears albums, <laughs> and they're talking about a whole epoch yeah. of music. You know, a, a lost age of yeah. of you know a golden era. Well, it was pop. just after the Big Bang, so the universe was expanding very quickly at that ah, point. Love it. We need Brian. You're Cox. absolutely right. Brian Cox would agree. Yeah, it's he, his kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, he's in that musical. Time university. has slowed down. Yeah, in terms of it's certainly in terms of musical innovation, but we we don't need to go into that. Yeah. But yeah. Lyrically, it's, it's incredibly poignant, I think, this song. And the vocal delivery by both um, Kev and Eric is just utterly gorgeous. Well, you've got, in my ears, the two best singers yeah. trading verses uh, and then singing very unusually in unison at points. Yeah. There's a little bit of harmony, but they actually sing together, which has its own... It must be deliberate and has its own effect which yes. they're obviously going for great and, and both panned hard left hard right oh are they? I, yeah right, which okay. is uh, again uh, possibly a hark back to Beatles production I, I think right and you know when uh, the Beatles albums came out in in stereo in the early days you, sometimes you'd have drums in in one ear and the vocals all in in, yeah, in the right. opposite ear which okay. made it very painful to listen to so I think there's definitely a kind of a, a throwback to 60s 60s record production. They used it again, of course, in um, on the How Dare You album with Don't Hang Up, where you've got Kev's lead vocal coming from one speaker. Mm-hmm. But that's a different premise because, of course, he's on the phone. Okay, right. So you, you would hear that in, in one ear. But we digress. And then, of course, the gizmo, the introduction, may not be its very first appearance, but it's its first significant appearance. Yeah, um, yeah certainly. I mean, it, 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 it appeared... <laughs> In a very minor way on on the B side, you know, Giz, uh, Gizmo My Way. Well, we'll, we'll come on to that. Yeah. Say it's so minor. Compared to this, which yeah. is like a, a beautiful um, sort of soundscape created by overlaid uh, Gizmo, played by Lol. Yeah. Because um, when I when I first fell in love with this track, I had no idea what I was listening to. No, it was just same just here. a sound. Yeah. Yeah. And now having you know we've we've picked up our own Gizmotron now and, and tried to get any kind of well, meaning, I haven't, I haven't meaningful... Well, I have got my hands on it yet. No, that's right. When I, when I mend it, <laughs> yeah. you can have it. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to play. Uh, and what Lowell's achieving on this is just something of real beauty. Lonely. 
Now, this was... Um, I was speaking only this week to Peter Wadsworth, who's the strawberry archivist, and we're hoping to shortly have him as a, as a guest to give us lots of great information. But we were talking about the history of the gizmos, the mm. actual physical things. Um, there was a, a prototype prototype which Lol and maybe Lol and Kev built themselves. I think the timeline is such that it was this that that instrument was used on this album and they then shortly after collaborated with Manchester University to create the prototype which right. went on to play on Consequences and yeah. other 10CC records um, so this was the, the very first example of a, of a playable gizmo I don't think it, it was d- it reliable it does a very good job it does I don't think it was as reliable as the, as the kind of version that was built up by John McConnell, wasn't it, at yes. Manchester University and, and his colleagues or his department. So maybe it had to be used more sparingly. Although, you know, we do, back to that 74 in concert, you do see it being played there live. Yeah. And it's it's not, you know... It's, it's not even the same sound he gets well, no, on I don't, the record. I, no, maybe that's just, it's not possible to get that control as you can in the studio, I mm. would imagine. Uh, so yeah. it doesn't or sound... maybe for that for that concert, it just wasn't quite playing ball. <laughs> yeah, it was it had its own personality. It's, yeah, its rubber wheels just decided not to you know to, not to do what they're supposed to do. Well, like the Mellotron, it had character apparently, <laughs> didn't it? Depending on the temperature and humidity yeah. and the environment, it, yeah. it sort of was it would either emotion. get go out of tune or break. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, a, a, a gorgeous, soft three-dimensional colorful sound created by the gizmo but lol's pretty busy on this track he's playing synth as well there's um who's synth on there who's who's playing guitar on this track does it sound lol plays uh electric guitar right uh, as does eric um so it looks like from the credits it look it looked like it looks like eric is playing the harmonized lead guitar solo yeah right he's playing slide guitar as well mm-hmm. um, the, the guitar solo on this one is a little bit it, it contrasts a little bit too harshly I think with the, the beauty of the rest of the track oh I think it's lovely I think it's really an emotional high point of the record I know I think I disagree I think the guitar okay. solo is great it really it gives that extra voice when the track needs to move into another gear. No, you've got a point. There's certainly a, a huge dynamic going on. Yeah. Yeah, really, really superb. Um, Graham's playing uh, auto-harp on this one as well. Okay. What is an auto-harp? Luckily, my friend Wikipedia has, uh, has shown me a nice picture of one. It says it's a musical instrument in the corded zither family. It features a series of chord bars attached to dampers. And when you press it, it mutes all the strings not in the chord you want. Mm. So we're just thinking, Sean and I, that it, it's got... In the same way that an accordion works, isn't it? Where you uh, press yeah. the chord buttons yeah. with yeah. your left hand. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it kind of opens or closes the, the holes yes. that, oh. the, that the air will come out of. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> And then closing side one is um, the track that immediately leapt to number one in my uh, my favourite track on the album, just because of the sheer wacky fun of it. Uh, totally unique 
in pop, I think, uh, and, and an amazing, completely off-the-wall idea to write a pop song from the point of view of a bomb as the protagonist, a bomb on a plane. Yeah. What on earth? I'm a clockwork creep And I can't get asleep They wind me up and let me go And I can't unwind Going out of my mind My time is coming soon, you know I'm a jumbo jet With a brand new set I mean, number one, it's it's great that, that that Kev and Lol managed to get Eric and Graham completely on board with this song. I mean, I think Eric in his, his book says, you know, they'd come up with these wacky ideas. You want to sing a song about a bomb on a plane, but yeah, there it is. And well, you've got Lol playing the bomb. I think Kev is playing the 747. Yeah. Uh, Eric is the pilot, is he? You've got yeah. all these different sort of characters singing and it's... Um, it's quite bizarre. It's only my willpower that keeps this thing in operation. Okay. And, and Eric's really singing that with some zest as well, isn't he? They're loving doing this. Yeah. And um, Graham's bass is amazing on this tune. Yeah, yeah. And it's got that lovely section. Da, da, my landings are the envy. So, so. Oi! <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Where, the, and where the vocal is fed, fed through something like a Leslie wheel or something to okay. give it that kind of uh, electronic-y, uh, I'm a plane sort of sound. Right, and of course it's got that whole section which is reprised in I'm Mandy, Fly Me. Uh, oh, you never get me up in one of these again. Yeah, I've heard some people um, conjecture that it's, it's the same event, which is interesting, maybe, seen from different points of view, okay, yeah, as yeah. if it's the same plane. Yeah. I'm Mandy is the passenger's story, if you like. Yeah. I like that the idea. Yeah, stewardess. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure whether that was, you know, whether the, whether the band thought in that way, but it certainly works, that idea. Like, oh. Certainly if we ever did a 10cc tribute show, Paul, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be fun to, to segue the two songs together, yeah, wouldn't it? Would, it wouldn't it, yeah. It certainly would. Mm, there's a thought. <laughs> I, I love it, and I, I, like like Paul's saying, I love the way, uh, very very cinematically, it, it bangs from one character to the next. One minute you're in the, the cockpit, the next you're in the in the hole hidden in a, in a bag, the next you're, you know, you are the plane, talking. Mm. And slightly, uh, prophetically, um, both the airlines mentioned Sabina and Pan Am of both gone bankrupt in the yeah. past 40 years now I know it's a long time mm. and it's rather dark because Pan Am's bankruptcy was in part due to the, the Lockerbie mm. disaster yeah so uh, but an interesting 
takeaway, perhaps. Definitely. Uh, one of the really clever things about this song is that the the backing track is incredibly sparse. Right. There's, it's practically it's rim shots and bass with 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 single notes played on the piano. Right, single notes with lots of holes. That reminds it sort of reminds sort of Peter Cook style. <laughs> I knew a girl from Amsterdam. Him, him again, yeah. yeah, that's it. Thank Perhaps you. I got him in earlier. Yeah. yeah, and and wonderful bass playing that is very percussive and very melodic. Uh, the bass is basically carrying the whole backing track. Well, that reminds you, you know, they often talk about, they, it's often talk about the, and I guess we'll talk about this on the episode about the original soundtrack, the kind of uh, cross influences between Bohemian Rhapsody and One Night in Paris. Or maybe, you know, that centre section of Bohemian Rhapsody, have you heard it? The instrumental track, yes, which is just completely disorganised yeah, and yeah. dislocated. Maybe that's a closer representation it's very well choreographed obviously but on its own it the, the clockwork creep track would probably make appear to make little sense until you add the vocals true and the there's certainly there's very little chord playing going on in the backing track right. clockwork creep okay sort of indi- individual notes that's really interesting. there's a real simplicity it must have been incredibly hard to do live for that reason they did do it live didn't they yeah but i've not actually i've not heard a, a version of it no no just hold on is there any guitar on this track? Is it is it uh, credited? Yeah, Graham's playing uh, electric guitar and a bazooki. You know that wonderful thing. Meanwhile, the cargo, cargo, the cargo. Okay. Yeah. Um, which again is, is is one of those wonderful moments, a kind of a mini version of the uh, middle section of "Don't Hang Up," where they you, you cut to the holiday, oh, yeah. don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's a, a a typical Godly and Cream cut to a, a different scene. Um, so that's that's probably where the guitars come in, and okay. then you're back to do 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 do, and then the, the, the track finishes with Kev literally. Wrapping the edge of his snare drum with uh, with his sticks. Yeah, the ticking gets louder. The implication being that well, it's going to go off, isn't it? it? Well, it, the, maybe the implication being that it has gone off, but you haven't heard it because you were destroyed by the bomb. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I was all when I first heard this track. I was kind of waiting to hear an explosion at the end, but that would be too <laughs> cliched, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really wonderful. It's it's witty. It's fun. It, it whips along at, at lightning speed, doesn't it? Mm. And it's unique. Oh, yeah, completely. Brilliant. And the side two, you know, it starts strongly in, 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 in very commercial fashion with um, the, the album's other hit single. Uh, again, Eric Stewart has a hand in that. Uh, and uh, this time writing with LOL. somewhere that they were actually trying to write a conventional love song. <laughs> uh, you can just see the germ of that 
but it got silly very quickly and uh, they just they went with that approach but the whole song is a is a mickey take of conventional love songs yeah but i think right at the outset i believe they were trying to write something more straightforward and, and they couldn't because they weren't in that mindset at that point right yeah the cream stewart combination came up with four songs uh across those those first four albums right and generally they tend to be of, of a often of a type um quite ballsy quite rocky tunes what are the other two then lazy ways is one four percent of something oh yeah okay, you know, which that... is very much kind of sticking two fingers up to jonathan king's yeah, royalty policy mold, yeah. do you know what i mean yeah okay. so they they were clearly having having some fun kind of rocking out a little bit. Right. Were they already brothers-in-law at that time? Uh, good question. Well, I think Eric was married in the 60s. Yeah. I'm not sure when uh, Lowell married Ange. Um, good question. I don't know. Certainly by the mid-70s they were married, so I, I guess they were, yeah. Okay. Okay. So maybe they, um, maybe they, they used to go upstairs into a bedroom at family parties. <laughs> take the guitars up there and say, do you know what, I'm bored. (laughs) But what I love, I I didn't initially love uh, the song that much. I first heard it on when the Greatest Hits album came out. Yeah. Uh, Late 70s, I think that was. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, probably around the time of Dreadlock Holiday. And uh, this was one of my my least favourite tracks. But what I do like about it most is the the cheeky way they, they, they ridicule sort of lyric cliches in in old uh, old love songs yeah uh, and, and they're always adding twists and things we're up to here with mooning and juning if you want to sound sincere don't rely on Crosby's crooning take a little time make up your own rhyme so it's almost like a call to arms isn't it to, yeah you know let's get rid of cliches and godly and cream have, have almost made it their raison d'etre haven't they to kind of avoid cliches at any at any point Yes, that's right. And, um, and, and so did Stuart and Goldman initially, because when they came to write I'm Not In Love, they were trying to find yeah. a new way of saying I love you. But eventually, perhaps they reverted more to type, to their, you know, more traditional approaches. And, and eventually that maybe one could say it became pedestrian. That's right. It's amazing that there's only two years between I'm Not In Love with that genius premise yeah. and then People In Love, which yeah. has... No premise at all, as far as I can, as far as I can hear. Sorry, folks, but yeah, horses for courses. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a rebellion, isn't there, uh, lyrically with mm. with 10cc. One of the reasons I think they're so irresistible at this at this time is just that that constant feeling that they're they're, they're challenging barriers, they're reinventing uh, the, the, the whole concept of what pop songs can do, what they're allowed to do. Mm. There don't seem to be any barriers. And uh, they're, I think, self-consciously mavericks. And I, lo- I love them for that. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, you know the art of conversation must be dying. Ooh, when a romance depends on cliches and toupees and three-pays. Don't rely on Crosby's 
This reminds of uh, Rubber Bullets in a, a hit single where the guitar solo on the album sort of goes on for longer than and is edited on the single, I think, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It wasn't a big hit. Number 24, it says in my notes. Yeah. Which, you know, was not, not as big as they'd been accustomed to and would become accustomed to later. It's interesting that sheet music, I mean, it was a commercial success. It was a top 10 album, mm. but it didn't have any absolutely massive singles, unlike, unlike all the other records. Yeah, that's right. So, the others all had to top five, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. At least. One of my, my secret favourites on the record if only because I love the sound of it, is one of the sort of rare commodities, a, a godly Goldman collaboration. I love Sacroiliac. Here's a new dance that you all can do. Baby, baby, what's he gonna do? Sit back and relax, cause it's good for you. Baby, baby, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna say? He's taking my breath away. You're tired of doing the boogaloo And you're afraid of doing the swim Cause you think you will drown in the noise of the record And the clots on the floor He ain't there anymore Cause all you wanna do is be alone at the bar Oh yeah, I wouldn't say it was... I mean, when I first heard the record, I think maybe apart from the worst band in the world and Wall Street, which I already knew, this was my favourite mm. and remains my favourite. Mm. So... Uh, Lovely tune, beautifully sung with lovely harmonies. I think it's mostly a two-part you know, duet between Graham and Kev. Yeah. And then it kind of expands to three-part. And you've got that bit where the voices are coming from all parts of the spectrum. <laughs> you want to drown in your cocktail seems to come from somewhere behind your left or right That's ear, yeah, depending yeah, yeah. on which way around you've got your headphones. You want to drown in your cocktail. You want to leave with the yeah, often Kev is, is panned wildly left and wildly right. Right. Uh, that might have been Eric just wanting to create a bit of uh, extra sense of dimension. Or maybe Kev really liked it and said, go on, Eric, pan me left. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you're absolutely right. He's kind of uh, shouting from down the corridor yeah, at really you. It's like brilliant. That. It's a great central conceit. The sacroiliac uh, is, is that like your sternum? Is it an ode to sitting down... On your ass and doing nothing rather than dancing. That's the way I read it. Yeah, for me, it's always it's been like uh, I've I've got uh, you know a slip disc kind of thing. So and I can't. So I can't dance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So and again, they're reinventing the whole cliche of songs like the mashed potato or the locomotion or the twist. It's another variation of a yeah. dance song. Yeah. Isn't it? And that, what they're doing is turning that convention on Honestly, its head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and writing a song about someone who can't dance, yes. which, which I love. And there's, there's a real a sense of a real personality. The protagon I really like the protagonist in this yeah. song. Again, it's quite a kind, warm-hearted song somehow, yes. isn't it? And it's kind of the opposite of, of one of their other uh, collaborations on the How Dare You album, you oh, know, Iceberg, yeah. which has a very much a, a nastier, darker undertone. Very much. I mean, Godly Gorman songs, there were three of them, weren't there? There was this Channel Swimmer and Iceberg. Um, I, mean, I would rate Sacroiliac and Channel Swimmer as two of the best, and Iceberg. And no, this. I think Channel Swimmer is Goldman Stewart. 
No, it's not, I don't think. Really? Where have you... It's interesting, you know, it's funny you should mention that because we have a, a short aside here. I heard an interview recorded when uh, Kevin and Graham were working on their GGO, GGO6 project, right? Yes. And the interviewer started by playing Channel Swimmer and said, oh, that's a song by our two guests. Kevin Godley actually said, well, I don't remember working on that one. I, th I thought that was a Eric Graham song. Well, on the, on the, um, the CD reissue from about, I don't know, 15 years ago, and I was, I was having a look through the liner notes uh, the other day, and I was just scribbling down the, the songwriter credits for all the songs, 70, 73 to, to 76, and it, it definitely said Goulburn Stewart for Channel Swimmer. It sounds like a Goulburn Stewart song, but I think the, the written references to Godly Goulburn outweigh it. But just going back to what was said... OK, no, no I'm, yeah, I'm happy no, no, to reassess that. I wonder that. whether it could be... I mean, this is just a... OK, right, life is a minestrone... That was Cream Stewart. Could it have been a very kind of generous way of making sure that all four of them had a pairing on the first single off the original soundtrack? Maybe. Maybe. So maybe it was accredited. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But, okay. But, uh, yeah, so I know that Kev, um, for his project with, uh, with GGO6, yeah. he, he, he very much wanted to revisit a partnership that he didn't feel had... had had reached its fruition with mm. 10cc. They obviously enjoyed writing together, yeah. and the songs were really unusual and quirky. Yeah, um, yeah, out fantastic. And then the album closes with possibly my least favourite track on on the album, but that's uh, that's a harsh way of, of of describing any track on on sheet music mm. because I think every track has enormous merits of its own. OFND isn't quite up there for me with the others but would be a strong track on any other uh, 10cc album, oh, in my opinion. It's up there for me. It's a yeah. great track. In the middle of a caravan on a four-wheel drive oasis There's a man with a thought in mind to cash in on the desert faces Got a truckload of Yorkshire girls for the harem going places And the border bums never saw the guns in the whiskey cases There's a real big demand And it's written in the palm of his hand He's gonna change the face of the desert He's gonna sweep away the sand Again, it's, it's a risque lyric They're having a pop at, I don't know, corporate development by Arab... I think it's even more sinister, the gun running, it's... Uh, yeah. um, That's right, it's, it's about a corrupt society, isn't it? There's a lot of... There's, like Hotel, it's the corruption of a culture, isn't it? Yeah. That, 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 that appears in a couple of places here. It does. It's a bit unclear exactly what's, what's being... the way it's being approached, but it's, that, it's very similar in that respect. Yeah, Sleaze features quite yeah. heavily on the oh. album, doesn't it? Somewhere in Hollywood it's there. Yeah, right, right. Um, you know, Wall Street, um, so much. Um, there's some great, great wordplay on here. Um, and, yeah, like you say, the, 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 the gun running, there's the, you know, building of hotels in the desert. Um, the pyramids, yeah. your favourite, is in there. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what key it's in. Is it in E flat? <laughs> we should we should find out. Yeah, an effendi. That's a you know a term of uh, of honour 
in, I, in, in Arab culture. I really like the way that uh, the lyric, there's no more goodies in the pipeline, oh. works doubly, both as the, the oil's run out and its placement as the last thing on the album. It's like, well, that's it, Tenji C factory's out of ideas, no more goodies in the pipeline, see you next time. I love that. What is a wonderful end to the album, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Just a, a dead cut like that. Um, yeah, the middle section of this is beautiful. Eric, um, presumably singing and playing guitar mm. on that bit, uh, it cuts through so beautifully. It's wonderful, a brilliant vocal on that section. Yeah. To, it's quite slightly more rugged and rocky, isn't it? The guitars on this track. It, yeah. I mean, it, everything's tightly controlled and arranged, but within those parameters, it, it's a bit looser. Yeah, uh, that's the feeling I get. Anyway. And, a, and, a, and a bit of that kind of bluesy or, or country element that we we saw on quite a few of, of Eric's contributions to the first album. Yeah, coming out here again. Yeah, uh, the kind of the kind of the kind of guitar licks that you'd expect from from. From American rock, basically. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, you know, it, it trips along at quite a speed, and it's a, it's a fun track. Great chorus, really dry production on the vocals, which makes the vocals just leap out at you. Right. Yeah. Fabulous. But perhaps we're we're saving one of the best pieces till last, Paul. The jewel in the crown of the album. Yeah. As time goes, I mean, as time goes by for me, other tracks have risen, but it certainly was a standout. Uh, do you remember that when Mike Grant, our friend and broadcaster, asked us to pick half a dozen songs for his radio show, we both independently picked somewhere in Hollywood. That's remember right. That? Yeah. The theme was California songs inspired Evoke. by California. Yeah. 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 And we, yeah, we both chose somewhere in Hollywood. Um, and again, it it is undoubtedly uh, a big, big nod to uh, possibly, arguably, Brian Wilson's masterpiece uh, as, uh, in terms of individual songs. It surfs up yeah. from the original Smile sessions in 66. A diamond necklace played the pawn Hand in hand, sun grown the long walk To a handsome man in the dark Somewhere in Hollywood has got the same kind of pedestrian tempo with, with chords played one, two, three, four. Very, a very straight rhythm on the piano playing block chords, mm -hmm. um, minor sevenths and that sort of thing, sixths. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful sound. One of my favorite Kev Godley vocals and one of my favorite lyrics as well. Yeah. Down on the casting couch, the star is gonna be born. A star with the stature of a Harlow, who's doing. 
it's quite wistful and sad, isn't it? Again, it's it's not as it's cutting, but it, it yeah, sad is the word. The uh, the the sort of lost dreams of Hollywood, or the people left stranded, or is it talking about a particular starlet who is going to be disillusioned? Yeah, down, down on the casting. It couch. could be any of those things, but I, I I feel it's a personal story. Is it Marilyn Monroe? Because Norman Mailer, who was a biography a biographer, is mentioned. So maybe it is more straightforward than we're thinking. Yeah, it, it could well be, but it, it, it's definitely set in that era, isn't it? You've got the kind of, dare I say it, the um, the scandalous current behaviour that's uh, that's been currently being punished in in Hollywood is, is here, you know, for all to see. Yeah, you know, the casting couch mm. and. Interspersed with that sleaze in the song, you've got the, the beautiful nostalgic imagery as well, haven't you? Um, where uh, the narrator is saying, he knew Marilyn when I was a kid. She gave me a feather from her gown to cool me down. And he's cold and he's dangerously close was the weather when I was a kid. romanticism about this tune I think yeah yeah that's right it's um, lots of different melodies you mentioned the lyrical device to join one section and another that's right the the, the enjambement that's the word yeah uh, where the, the, they use really really clever cleverly here where they they delay delivering the final word of a phrase or a sentence until the next line so there's a line where they're talking about Norma Mailer uh, who's Dangerous. So the the musical phrase finishes there, and then Kevin adds Lee, and then you come down for the second verse. Close was the weather. It's, it's absolutely marvellous. They're they're playing with us. Yeah. It's like they're they're toying with us. Um, and and well, they're ed- editing scenes. Yeah. Right? It's and got, yeah. Interestingly, Van Dyke Parks uses exactly the same techniques oh, yeah. on on the lyrics of Surfs Up. That's right. So maybe this a, a, and on Song Cycle and other of his songs. Exactly. Where it, oh yeah. So um, it might well be that that Surfs Up was very much a template for for this song musically and lyrically. And what do you make of the quote of the Long and Winding Road? Da 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 da. That, I mean, it's of course five, it is. And I've never notes, even, but it's I've never even thought of that. It seems deliberate to me. But mm. because it's not actually a main part of the melody, it's a it's a motif fit that features in the uh, certainly in the outro. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. That yeah. I can't believe I've never picked up oh, on well. that before. And Kev, tap- I'm, I'm glad you're here. And Kev tap dancing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he's certainly got uh, some variety in his in his percussion cupboard, hasn't he? Yeah, he has, when yeah. you you think of what you'd be doing on consequences, uh, but. Yeah, he's been very, very inventive. Uh, I think back to the Dean and I, actually, that's got... He's got the, the mouth kind of uh, shaker effect. Yeah. yeah, train noises. I wonder if that's Kev doing a, a different kind of percussion with his mouth.
finale at the end of Somewhere in Hollywood as well, where you've got sort of the, the, the band vocals. Um, and there's something a bit dark and sinister, I think, about that. Dun, 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 dun. Well, they're singing through like a megaphone, aren't they? All? Yeah. It's the, um, the character of the, um, the guy calling lights, camera, action. Mm. Yeah. And again, the arpeggios, we, you know, a lot of this, you mentioned block chords, which is true, but mm. also running through, you've got these arpeggios, um, which... The, the, the piano thing. Yeah, yeah, broken chords, which yeah. follows all the way through yeah. to Brand New Day and then to Consequences and, and beyond. Mm. So very, very interesting. Yeah, and uh, use of, of synth as well on this track. Oh, where's, where's the synth? Marvellous track. Mm. Would have made a fine album closer, I think. Yeah, Although then you would have lost the joke about no more goodies in the pipeline. Yeah. They, they wanted to finish on an upbeat note, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah, it works. The album's perfectly sequenced, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it, now it comes with uh, a couple of interesting bonus tracks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the B-sides to the debut album were... Um, Throwaways in in my mind, uh, waterfall accepted, which was eventually put on the B side of Rubber Bullets, right? Yeah. But the B sides here, Gizmo My Way and uh, Eighteen Carat Man of Means, I really like them both. Particularly Gizmo My Way, which I thought was a lovely, There's lovely a, tune. A lovely little thing. Yeah. Very subtle use of, of Gizmo. Of yeah. The, it's kind of used in the same way as, as Old Wild Men. Yeah. As that, as that lovely bed of, of, of softness in the background. But it's not quite prominent in the mix enough for my, my tastes. No, okay. But um, the, the melody played by the sort of slightly countrified guitars yeah. is, is gorgeous. It's really nice, isn't it? It's gorgeous. Uh, I, I'm I, not so keen on 18 Karat Man of Means. Uh, well, it's kind of a bit of a, um, a hybrid. It's kind of a fairly basic rocky verse, but I love that refrain. Uh, yeah, you're all right. right. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I love that bit. Yeah, 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 they're all right. Yeah, 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 they're all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 you're all right. So, yeah, it's more kind of money, uh, you know, my my check kept bouncing back and all this kind of yeah know, I, it's good lyrics um, you're shaking my hand but you hold my head I think if I, it's uh, yeah I like both the B sides but to be fair I couldn't see them displacing any of the ten tracks on on the album itself no, I, I I always think that uh, with the the bonus tracks I'm thinking why wasn't it chosen uh, well you know it probably it probably doesn't match up to the quality of the other tunes. Um, I think in almost all cases with the 10cc albums, they were more or less justified to keep them off, with the exception maybe of Channel Swimmer, which we'll come on to next, next time, won't we? We will indeed. Um, so sh sheet music, Paul, whenever you look through uh, greatest albums of all time list, and it says, you know, a, a thousand and one albums you must own, sheet music 
always makes the list, sometimes to the, to the exclusion of all the other 10cc albums. Do you think it deserves, once history shakes down in a hundred years' time, if 10cc's footnote is, I'm not in love as a single mm-hmm. and sheet music as an album, do you think that's fair? Do you think it's good enough to be standalone their best work? I do, although I also think 10cc and their story, their history, their chronology is actually too varied and interesting really to be compressed into a single um, icon, if you like. I mean, inevitably it will be, and that icon will be I'm Not In Love, there's no doubt about it. But if you want to look at 10cc, I don't think you can lop off the arms and legs. I think you've Mm. got to look at Hot Legs, you've got to look at the Graham Gorman thing, the other things he wrote, Um, you've got to look at Godly and Cream, you've even got to look outside music, you've got to in some way understand, watch the videos, videos, understand their artistic sensibility, Kev's teacher, Bill Clark, you know, who told him to think differently, Mm -hmm. you really, you know, if you've got time, I think you've got to try and encompass all of that. They're a very colourful palette, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So, I do agree that um, sheet music is the best the best single record that was released at the time in album form that that showcases the four. Although I would say, although they're not, they are and they aren't a singles band. Really, I suppose if you have one LP, one LP, you can't get much better than the original 1972 to 1978 greatest hits mm. because all their singles are fantastic. Absolutely. So that would actually probably be the one you'd put in the museum. Yeah. You know, and then you get I'm Not In Love as well. Yeah, no, a very, very good point. Um, and strangely, the original soundtrack, which we'll come on to next week, the highlights of that of that record are stellar. Yeah. Um, you've got the all-time classic. You've got a brilliant concept uh, record, and you've got one of my favourite singles, upbeat, you know, in Minestrone. Uh, but somehow, even though original soundtrack seems to hit some higher notes. There's something about sheet music that is a, a very likable, lovable collection that's, that, that hangs together as a, as a, almost like a, a concept album, a deliberately esoteric and varied piece like the White Album or Revolver or any of those classic Beatles albums that are deliberately... Uh, deliberately varied. I'd say Revolver, right, because, and not the White Album, only because sheet mu- on sheet music there is no evidence whatsoever of tiredness. <laughs> I think there is on the original soundtrack. Yes. Or, you know, form the formula, or, or somehow it becoming a job. Mm. I think... I know the, what you mean, and, it, and some of the tracks are a bit, dare I say, slightly boring. Yeah, whereas it's not evident on, tensi- on sheet music, I no. beg your pardon. And that's because they were still loving it. And I think we have evidence that, that they, they, they were at the, you know, the peak of enjoying themselves within 10 CC. That's it. And, absolutely- and Graham, Graham still holds it up as, as the, he says, if you want to hear 10 CC firing on all cylinders, yeah. why, you know, what justifies us as a, as a, as a musical outfit, just listen to sheet music. And, and he pays tribute to the album to this day by well, he, he, pa- he, he plays it end to end doesn't he, he played it yeah and that that's the that's right i think that 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 proves it yeah so a marvelous record thank you 
all four of you chaps for, for giving us this, this wonderful record. And uh, we, we hope, uh, for everyone listening, we hope we've done it any kind of justice at all. Uh, a difficult job, but uh, we've, we've certainly enjoyed trying. We have. See you next time then, folks. Cheers. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening